Hi! Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast, where we podcast our movie reviews. Very friendly of you. <laughs> My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. I write for the rap and slash film and so forth. Thank you. Yeah, hype your outlets. It's eh. fine so people can find where your writings are. Yeah. If they want to hear more of what you have to say. Why? Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. You don't want to hear what I have to say. See? Uh, Pot, this is kettle. Yes. Uh, I write, I contribute to Slash Film. Uh, I'm a film critic. Uh, did you mix in that sound effect? That was great. Like, hey, welcome to our podcast. Whatever. Kaboom. <laughs> Be great. <laughs> this is our film review podcast. We're at the end of the year here, uh, which mean, which is kind of hell for critics. It's like, kind, it's, of, kind of hectic, yeah. It, and not in that we have to watch a lot of bad movies. That's January. Uh <laughs> It's, it's because we have to watch a lot of movies. It's because we have to watch a lot of movies, and a lot of sort of the voting bodies, and a lot of the year-end lists, and a, a lot of the award circuit that we're involved with, tends to want to wrap things up by, like, the end of November? Yeah. Or want... maybe, like, first week of December at the latest. Yeah, they might, like, hold off on, like, one of the Christmas blockbusters that they don't expect to get a lot of, mm. like, awards buzz. Like, they still haven't screened Aquaman yet, but... <sighs> Pretty much everything that's going to be screened has been screened, and we were expected to have seen it by the end of November because by the time January rolls over, and it actually makes sense to do a year in review because we've been through the whole year, they've already moved on. Yeah. They want to get the jump on the year in review, so they want to be able to put out the first magazine, the first article, the first podcast that says, here were the best blankety blanks of 2023. And we try not to do that. We tr- we try not to do that. Um, but at the same time, we're kind of beholden to a lot of that. Yeah. So we... I, I'm a member of a critics group. We already voted. And, yeah. I had to burn through so many movies. But and this is not the hardest of... thing in the world. It's just time consuming. It's time consuming. And a lot of studios don't treat us very well in mm. that they book screenings, sometimes multiple screenings on the same night. Yeah. You have to choose what to prioritize, and you're just going to miss stuff. Yeah. Every year, you're going to miss stuff. Yeah, and, at, le- uh, at least in a timely manner. So, yeah. yeah. So, so, sometimes we get to catch up with it. Uh, you and I, we like to do our uh, best of the year list in January, like wait until yeah. the year is out. At the very before... least, the last week of December. Yeah. At the yeah. very least, yeah. Um, because, yeah, we want an opportunity to see as many movies as possible. We want to catch up to movies that we missed. We want the movies that actually came out late to have an opportunity mm-hmm. To wow us and make those lists. You know, we had to do all of these lists before anyone saw Rebel Moon. And for all we knew, it was great. You know what? I will I will be pleasantly surprised by Rebel Moon, perhaps. Perhaps. I haven't seen it yet. I have. I, I, and I'm not a fan of the director, mm. uh, a, a fellow named Zack Snyder. Right. Um, but... I was ready to give it a shot. I'm like, okay, I'm, the, there's, you know... Even it's a chance hor- it could be great. Even horrible directors with a bad track record can surprise you. Indeed. So I'm I'm not going. I can't have any judgment of Rebel Moon. No, it exactly. looks it looks bad. But <laughs> Rebel Moon is having a one week theatrical run so that it can be mm-hmm. eligible for awards. And I assume they're going mostly for like costume design, special effects. I think mm-hmm. it's pretty unlikely it's going to be a Best Picture contender. But it's having that opening weekend, and Whitney hasn't seen it yet. I have. You can read my review on the wrap didn't care for it i'll elaborate in great detail on that review in next week's podcast but we'll review that next week so whitney has an opportunity to see it so we can have yeah, yeah. an elaborate conversation about it because i know it's gonna it's people are talking <laughs> uh, but we do have a lot of movies to review this week so we're going to be reviewing this week 
uh, Wonka, uh, The Zone of Interest. Good double feature. Mm. Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget, American Fiction, and The Taste of Things. I like the way things taste. I also like the way things taste. They're good. <laughs> they make me happy. Luke, are you... Uh, you good, the, buddy? The cat is in the room with us Cat, today, cat so. might have gotten locked in with us. Right. We'll, we'll see if he wants out. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, let's, the, let's, uh, let's yeah, talk. Yeah, yeah we, we record these episodes at the end of the weekend, so we kind of know what most people have seen at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like most people have seen Wonka. Wonka was a pretty big hit. I'm actually a little surprised that, that, it, was was a hit. Big, that it was a big hit. Well... Wonka is uh, is the latest film based, although this one is very loosely based off of Roald Dahl's book Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Which it... rather 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 than going to Roald Dahl, however, mm-hmm. uh, this is much more inspired by the 1971 Mel Stewart adaptation of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It's called right. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It has all it... the design aesthetics. It has the song Pure Imagination in mm-hmm. it. They're clearly evoking that. And, and the Oompa Loompa song as well. And, like the, the, and the specific design of the Oompa Loompas, which was different right. in the Tim Burton version. That's right. So we had the 1970s version with Gene Wilder, which is a movie I grew up with and still love very, very much to mm. this day. Whitney, not so mm. much. No, I like it fine. Uh, okay. But Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is one of those films that uh, people our age, and, yeah. and maybe slightly older and maybe slightly younger, mm. also grew up watching. It was and on TV it, a lot. It was on TV a lot. It was a huge it was bomb really- when it came out. Uh, and it was proliferated on VHS a lot. It, it was just kind of got a, a second life through a certain generation of kids. Mm-hmm. And like films like, say, Ghostbusters or Gremlins or, or mm-hmm. Back to the Future, it was fetishized to within an inch of its life. Yeah. It became narrowed in on and canonized in a way that made it kind of embarrassing to talk about. Uh, it's really? Like, yeah, absolutely. Okay. The, the, the the repetition and the going back to it and the you know constant references in popular culture made the film, however good it might have been before, mm. kind of insufferable. Ah. Uh, but that your mileage is going to vary on that, though. I suppose so, but I I I think that it became overexposed. Mm. Uh, they even you know they remade it in two thousand five, I believe. Uh, that, there, yeah. yeah, Tim Burton directed the remake, and they changed a lot of the aesthetic. Uh, the aesthetics changed, just kind of off-putting in that one i think yeah uh it's it's not a very like that was when tim burton started to use like a lot more cgi and that was not befitting of his style um johnny depp played willy wonka in that film Mm -hmm. and he played him like sort of like this combination of michael jackson and carol channing it was a very bizarre performance uh spirited and odd but you know Not in a way that made a whole lot of sense. Also, they added mm. an element in that movie, which is relevant to the new film, mm. which is they gave Willy Wonka more of a backstory. Yeah. He always had a backstory in the book, but it was sort of these like legends that have been passed mm. on. Have you heard what Willy Wonka did? Well, in the book, Willy Wonka was like kind of a almost a villainous character, like kind of a mm. scary, monstery, goblin kind of a character. Yeah, you never were and, sure uh, where you were with him. Yeah, and and uh, in the 1971 film, Gene Wilder played the part and brought that kind of rage to the character. But mm. uh, the the movie made it uh, made the story a lot more whimsical. Yeah, and and I think the whimsy is what a lot of people liked about the movie. Mm. And I, from what I understand, Roald Dahl hated the movie. And oh, he hated he, it. That's why we didn't make any more. Yeah, he hated it so much. Uh, 
it's why there weren't more adaptations of his work at the time. No, what they waited until after he died, and then that's when I think the witches went into production. Although there were, I think, a few other Roald Dahl adaptations, but it was mostly of his like adult short stories. Yeah, yeah. And there was also a TV movie of Danny Champion of the World starring Jeremy Irons, which I think came out while he was still alive. Uh, which is pretty good. G- generally, he liked to stay away from Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, he, and he also hosted his own anthology horror TV series, Way Out. Yeah, which um, we covered on Cancel Too Soon yeah. a couple years which, ago. Which is pretty good. I liked Way Out. It's not that um, fun. But my, my point was bringing up the Tim Burton one was that in that movie, in addition to having different tones and sort of presenting Wonka in a different way, it didn't just adapt the book. It added backstory. Mm-hmm. Brand new backstory that we never had before. Specifically in that movie... And this is something that is definitely not in the new Wonka, so they're clearly not considering mm-hmm. Tim Burton's film canon. Um, he had a father who was a dentist, played by Christopher Lee, mm-hmm. who refused to let him eat any sweets. And he had his entire childhood spent behind this, like, absolute of headgear like yeah. this absolutely clive barker-esque headgear device like the absolute what what every kid thinks they look like when they have braces and they had headgear mm. i had headgear it sucked um so he never had any sweets and they finally did and it was such a life-changing thing that wasn't in the book mm-hmm. they added that for the movie so that they could give wonka kind of like a character ending for his character he could like reconnect with his dad i don't think it really worked but kudos to them for trying i guess because the thing with willy wonka and the chocolate factory or charlie and the chocolate factory is that it's 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 actually not a great sort of beginning middle end narrative Mm. it sets up there's a magical chocolate factory there's a little kid who wants to go to the chocolate factory and he has no personality whatsoever and and the book or the movie well and i feel like um Roald Dahl was drawing from Dickens. He chose like mm-hmm. an impoverished youth with no character, and all of mm-hmm. the people around him were a lot more interesting. Yeah, which that's... is kind of the way Dickens worked most of the time. Yeah, and I think I think it works. Don't get me wrong, but as a conventional cinematic narrative, it doesn't really fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then once you get to the Chocolate Factory in the book, Charlie disappears until the end. He's there, but he has nothing to do with anything. Yeah, I'll actually give uh, the Gene Wilder version a lot of credit because they give Charlie his own vignette in the Chocolate Factory with the fizzy lifting drinks. That's right. Which at least keeps him involved. <laughs> whereas the other, whereas the book and the other movie are just, um, yeah. Once they get to the chocolate factory, Willy Wonka like gives meets out karmic justice to all of these kids, mostly for the sins children. of their parents. Yeah. Um, and that's it. Just one after the other. It's like the 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 witch in Hansel and Gretel had like a different shack for each different kid and each different kid's vices. Um, but yeah, that's not, there isn't much of a through line for Charlie. He's a good kid. He gets everything. There's no through line for Willy Wonka. He's this kind of like weird impish cat in a hat type character. He doesn't need to change. Yeah, yeah. He is what he is. Uh, and that works, but they tried to like make something a little bit more conventional mm-hmm. and the new Wonka, which is directed by, is it Paul, Paul King? King? Yeah. Yeah. He did the Paddington movies, which are lovely by the way. Mm. No, not no unkind words about them. I actually am one of the few people who prefers the first one, but they're both great. <laughs> uh, he has directed a prequel to Willy Wonka called Wonka, starring Timothy Chalamet, who is absolutely nothing like Gene Wilder in any capacity mm. whatsoever. But here's the curious thing. He's a lot more like Johnny Depp in than, I, ways, than yeah. I think he would even want to admit in that yeah. he is... The reason Johnny Depp started taking sort of kooky roles and working with Tim Burton was because he was depressed by 
being uh, typecast as a heartthrob. Yeah, he was on 21 Jump Street, and mm. everyone thought him and Richard Grieco were going to be the next big yeah, generic so, heartthrobs. And he was bored and decided to do shit like Cry Baby and Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, like, like, yeah Cry Baby and Edward Scissorhands. He, he has said in interviews, sort of broke him out. And uh, so, yeah, he's like sort of... It, it meant, I mean, you just kind of have to acknowledge he's an immensely handsome dude. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Especially at the time. And had to uh, kind of ride out that sort of heartthrob image. So he was able to ride this line between heartthrob and kook. And I feel that's what Timothy Chalamet is doing here. He's like trying to be kooky, but he's fallen back on his bedroom voice a lot. Here's the thing Uh, with Timothy Chalamet in this movie. Because, okay. So Johnny Depp's Wonka was a weird sort of modern recluse, mm. you know, like the kind of person who just, you, you stare out on social media and every week they're doing something weird and strange. Uh, Gene Wilder played him as, you're not sure if he's your fairy godmother or Satan. Yeah. And this is a prequel specifically to that one. We've established yeah. that. The fairy godmother part comes through. He is playing that. He is your your child's best imaginary friend. Just yeah, kind and, the, and sweet and imaginative. And he also has flaws and the kind of flaws that kids can recognize and help mm. fix. You know, like, oh, Willie, you never learned how to read. Mm. I want to get to that in a minute because that's a weird plot point. But, uh, but, but there's none of the mischief. There's none of the well, anger. There's none of the edge that yeah, made I, that I think... movie, I think, so distinctive. There, well, and I've noticed this happens a lot with uh, certain kinds of movies where when they're first released, they're actually very cynical and mm-hmm. bitter. Yeah. And they get a lot of mileage for being different in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, another film I'm going to po- point to uh, came out mm-hmm. in 1983, I believe, was called A Christmas Story. Yeah. The Bob Clark movie. Oh, yeah. That was an anti-nostalgia movie. Yes, it took it place was. in, like, the was it the late 40s? And, um, 40s, 50s. It was all about how childhood sucked. Yeah, and how it was like looking back on Christmas and Christmas is a time of, like, greed and horror and getting picked on by bullies mm-hmm. and your parents don't really pay attention to you. Yeah, and you get punished uh, yeah. for things that aren't your fault and the mall Santa is a monster. Yeah, this, and, like, this was supposed terrible. To... He literally shoots his eye out. Yeah, th- this this is supposed to be a film, uh, and it's based on a book, yeah. of sort of looking back on that halcyon nostalgia of like the 40s and 50s and undoing it. It's like, no, Christmas is actually not a warm, exciting time. Mm-hmm. And enough time passed... That now it is again. People look mm-hmm. back at a Christmas story as if it's like the nostalgic thing. Because they encountered that when mm-hmm. they were young and it became part of yeah. their so, naive time. So it's its very purpose has been undone by the nostalgia people feel for it. I know, it's weird. Um, I feel the same way about uh, Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah. Uh, the Bill Watterson comic strip. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of I've seen a lot of writing and a lot of <clears throat> homages to Calvin and Hobbes that seem to recall a strip I didn't read. Mm-hmm. Uh, they recall it as this really sort of warm, to- warm nostalgic trip about how great childhood was. Calvin was very unhappy. Mm-hmm. He was angry a lot of the time. He got into fist fights with his own, his only friend who was imaginary. He yeah. made up his and he own lost. friend. And he lost fights to this tiger. And his parents clearly kind of loathed his presence. <laughs> this was like a really uncomfortable, wrathful strip. I, I, I'm going I'm uh, to fight you a little bit on that. Because when I think one of the things that was great about Calvin and Hobbes mm-hmm. was that it was sort of multifaceted about childhood. Mm-hmm. And you'd get all the, the, the meanness and the depression and the horror. But there would also be sweet times there would also yeah. be wonder and i think you know, those the, and the you... sweet times and the wonder came when calvin was fucking alone he was <laughs> he never found comfort in the company of others 
None of the other characters in that comic strip reacted well to Calvin's presence. <sighs> you know, I can't fight you on that part. I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that. But I do, but, th- I do think that there was that there was a certain understanding that Calvin, like, hmm. was actually like at at heart uh-huh. a pretty good kid. And I think there's a mm. certain sentimentality that comes with it that I think is natural mm. while he is still being a monster. Uh, yeah, my, my point is it was not a sentimental strip and it's been turned into something sentimental. Yeah. Ghostbusters was a bitter stri- a bitter movie. Yeah. about It's kind of cynical and mercenary about the way ghosts exist in this world. There's no wonderment well, it's, attached it's, to the it, ghost. It, it, it's it, a it turns job into for blue-collar capitalism. Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. about like entrepreneurs who frankly... Mm are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They are, have, yeah, they've got they're, nuclear they're, accelerators on their back that haven't been tested. The, the, these Walter are not, Peck should be looking into them. He's yeah. not wrong. And he was just wrong to turn shit off he didn't understand. Fast forward a couple decades and these characters are being held up as like, heroes like role models that wasn't the point of that movie I mean, I the think... point was that they weren't role models that they were schlubby assholes I th- what, they were schlubby open... assholes but they were Peter also... Venkman they... was openly a fraud <laughs> okay two of them were good scientists okay I'm gonna say two of them were two good of them si- were they scientists were, they were right they were hmm. right ghosts exist they figured out how to yeah, capture them There's a two of them. and I also think that one's kind of mitigated a little bit because for many many years what kept that series going was the animated series which had a different sort of angle I suppose and so and I think a lot think... of people grew up with that and that has kind of colored the way that we look at the movies maybe so maybe maybe you're yeah but, I wasn't, wasn't aware of the TV series but my uh... it was, oh it was huge I knew there were like a toys and stuff. But no, that the was TV show was big and it was right. good too. Like it actually holds up. There's a great, uh, there's a great Christmas episode Is that where the Citizen Kane episode. No, there is a Citizen Kane episode where there's the ghost of Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, pitch that as a Saturday morning cartoon now. <laughs> uh, but there's a really, really great Christmas episode of Go- the real Ghostbusters uh, where. They show up to a job and they bust these three ghosts and then they find out those are the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future and Christmas no longer exists. Oops. That's cute. That's, <laughs> That's a good great, idea. It's good uh, writing, right? That's a fun story. But yeah, I feel like uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the Mel Stewart film, mm-hmm. uh, because mostly because of Gene Wilder's performance, mm. was a very angry film and that you just said that, that this new film, the Paul King movie, doesn't have a lot of bitterness. <sighs> None at all. I think, and, I think yeah. there's some in the villains, mm-hmm. but Paul King is such a gentle filmmaker that even that doesn't really read. It's yeah, a so very it's, mild movie for the most part. It, it's mild and it doesn't fit the, it doesn't fit the character of the original movie. It fits at people's all. pleasant memories of the movie. Yeah, but the, 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 so it's like, we're like rewriting history with that original, but they still film. go out of their way to like set up the original movie. And like, here's how we met the Oompa Loompas. Mm. And here's uh, how he built the factory. At here's the how he built, yeah, the end, we found out how he built the factory and but like and and the thing with all of these like legacy prequels where we go back it's like they tend to go a little overboard establishing everything that happened to the yeah, original. Yeah, like, every, so like how did he get that gun how did he get yeah, that coat yeah, yeah, solo was a perfect example of this it's like oh my god how did he get those like little metal dice that hung from his thing i don't know a single person who even remembered that those were in the millennium falcon and you thought that was important <laughs> to establish that no crap. one cared here it's like they saw the the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory movie. They changed it from Charlie the Chocolate Factory because it was the Vietnam War at the time. Charlie had, oh, oh, wow, uh, yeah. Different connotations. Um, uh, but here it's like, okay, you know what's one of the things that's sort of a defining quality of Gene Wilder's Willy Wonka? He's very well read. So in the prequel, we should find out how he learned how to read. 
I don't care. I don't, I don't think care. we needed yeah, so that. That's a weird of, digression. It's like a lot of weird stuff yeah, like that. The, the very raison d'etre of this movie, explaining the origin of Willy Wonka, is something I don't care about. Not at all. I, I don't want to look into the backstory of Willy Wonka. I was never curious about it. It doesn't he's have more... a very interesting backstory, it turns no, out. How, like, how it's about, okay. How but... about he just started a chocolate factory and he's mm. a weird guy who has access to these exotic mm-hmm. imaginary foods that he puts into his chocolate and has magic powers. Yeah. Fine. I, I don't... Knowing where that came from is not important to me. And I, mm. actually, and I haven't watched... I know there's a tendency to overwatch and overanalyze things on home video. You can watch them over and over again and mm-hmm. notice mistakes when you see them on the hundredth time. Sure. And now a lot of these legacy prequels and a lot of those Disney remakes mm-hmm. are made specifically to address like online criticism. It's, mm. it's why really, didn't this uh, make sense before? Well, yeah. well, we'll explain it now. And it's like mm-hmm. most of the time it, they didn't put the explanation in there because it wasn't important. It was, there, there's there's or, always something. Or somebody tries to, you know, it becomes popular to sort of latch on to what, what is considered a plot error of some kind yeah. or a continuity error. Um, all of those trends, all of that cynicism was, you know, in the studio, like the executive room yeah. when they're deciding to make uh, Wonka. Uh, and here's the thing. I kind of like Wonka. <laughs> it's actually... God fucking damn it. It's, it's actually pretty like charming and bright and brisk uh-huh. the characters are all great mm-hmm. the songs well, I are i think that's an exaggeration but okay you just, liked it more than i did I, I like that these these actors and and it, it has like a who's who of like some oh, yeah. british character actors here and there yeah. um they're all overplaying yeah to a point that i thought was actually like really fun it mm-hmm. wasn't just insufferable mugging it matched the sort of outsized world i thought the songs were pretty hummable uh, really because i timothy timothy all. chalamet more so than a lot of musicals i've seen recently yeah. uh timothy chalamet is playing kind of this the the hunky heartthrob version of the character and i think he's doing it well because he's timothy chalamet and he just sort of he's, does sparkle a bit he's just the heartthrob um, that there's a love interest in the movie there isn't no he's no, he's, no. he's just <laughs> Timothy Chalamet is an interesting figure for me because he's a really talented actor, actually. Mm. Like, he's an exceptionally talented actor. I've seen him be amazing in movies, sometimes bad movies. Um, He's got that, but he's also got that team heartthrob cachet, and he's somehow managed to do both simultaneously, which is pretty impressive because a a lot of times you'll see someone like Robert Pattinson who had this, like, teen idol sort of vibe for a while with the Twilight movies, and during that time he was not doing his most interesting work. He only like was able yeah. to like sort of break out of that and do really interesting roles after the teen idol phase. Timothy yeah. Chalamet has found a way to do both, which is pretty impressive. And I think in Wonka, he's not doing a particularly interesting performance in terms of like making a lot of like weird choices or mm. exciting choices or really in-depth choices. But what he does capture, and it took me a while to get on board because I do think that Gene Wilder Wonka is the gold standard. Okay. And I, because this is a prequel, I kind of thought that he would get to that point a little bit. Like, it'd get a little more wilderish. He never does. But after a while, I'm not going to say he wore me down, because that suggests <laughs> that suggests that I'm, I'm, I'm annoyed by it. Mm. He, he has his own take. It is an extremely Paddington take on the character. 
It's a very, very cuddly version of the character. Very, very cuddly. Uh, if there has version, to be a cuddly Wonka, he is a good cuddly Wonka. And in this version of things, he hasn't. He moves to the big city after mm-hmm. spending a, a great deal of time abroad. Collecting, just like Batman. Just, just goes, like Batman. He goes abroad and learns his craft. Well, th- and this is actually from the Roald Dahl book, that mm-hmm. uh, Willy Wonka spent a lot of time abroad in uh, faraway lands, far away from England, mm-hmm. uh, collecting ingredients that aren't easy to find, and uh, mm-hmm. some of them are magical and fictional. Mm-hmm. And, learning techniques. Yeah, learning techniques and making candy out of it. Um, there was a scene in the Tim Burton film where um, Willy Wonka was like hacking through a jungle with a machete and he cuts it, uh, like a four foot mosquito in half. Uh. And this big blue gloppy blood flies everywhere and his first instinct is, oh, we'll taste that. Will that be good? Like <laughs> he licks off his machete. Mm, nah. And he keeps on going. <laughs> Cute. It, yeah. Not not a great movie, but it has some cute. We, we don't see much yeah. of that here, but he's just coming off it. Yeah, he's so he's coming off, and, he, and he's yeah. got a, a little magical case. He can open it up and mix magical chocolates inside of it. And he's coming to England, coming back to England after mm. a time abroad, and uh, wants to open up a, a candy shop. Mm-hmm. It's a big city, but there's only one place he wants to open a shop, and well, it happens to be right in this crux of candy makers. Yeah, and a Slugworth, which is from the book and from the '71 movie. Mm-hmm. Um, is the leader is, of these yeah. evil, corrupt candy makers. Uh, which are actually very, very similar to the evil, corrupt um, farmers from Fantastic Mr. Fox. Very much so. Yeah, in that there's three of them. They each have sort of... They're both def- deferent to one of them. And they all recognize that Willy Wonka's chocolates are really good. Too good. Mm. And he has to be stamped out. He can't be allowed to compete. He's like the electric car in the 80s. We have to, like, destroy this. Mm. And so they team up with a chocoholic chief of police, played by Keegan-Michael Key. Who can be bribed with chocolate. Yes, and he ends up being bribed with so much chocolate, but by the end of the movie, he's he's put on, like, 300 pounds, which, honestly, I thought was a cheap joke and I didn't need. Mm. But Keegan-Michael Key is a fun actor, so it's hard to... I'm a little mad at it, but it didn't ruin the movie, you know? I I don't think they... Well, because you know, it's clearly we, the joke. It's clearly the joke. They're um, they're making fun of the fact that he has that he's a, that he's a glutton that he can't stop eating chocolates. Exactly. Um, anyway, uh, they uh, so he's trying to like stamp out Willy Wonka, but meanwhile, and there's this whole weird side plot where Willy Wonka goes to this town and he spends the first night because he, he can't read. He signs a contract, doesn't read the fine print. Yeah, and he, he stays moves, at he night mo- at an inn he, run he, by Olivia he, Coleman. He, he moves in with the Tenardiers from Les Miserables, Basically, yeah, yeah. He finds himself accidentally signing a contract which makes him, like, he's going to have to pay off his debt to them and his debts are absurd. Like, there's like a fee for every step mm. he takes on, on the, the staircase. And so it's going to take him years to build it, to work this off, and he's going to have to do it in like their laundry mines. But he figures out a way yeah, to he's... sneak out, and he's going to sell his chocolates. He's going to sell so many chocolates that he will buy his freedom and the freedom of everyone else who works there. Everyone who works there is very sweet and has a unique skill set, which will be important later. Um, there we go. Uh, the other guy is played by an actor named Tom Davis, mm. who is oh, Olivia Coleman's like Olivia Col- yeah, other like para- para- would be paramour. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen him in movies before. You'd probably recognize him. He was in Paddington too, mm. because he's giant and he has one of the best voices. Oh yeah, uh, just you think they're doing something to his voice to make it deeper. That's just the way that guy sounds. Great voice. Like, yeah. Why is he not in every? Like you want to point a camera at that guy? Yeah. And I feel like they got a lot of guys like that. Mm. Interesting re- really actors. Yeah. Interesting actors with interesting features and deep voices, and mm. they're just 
I wonder why more movies just don't have interesting looking and sounding people. We in used that. to have interesting looking and sounding people in movies as a matter of course. Yeah. You look at, look, pick any movie with an ensemble cast from like the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and they are full of interesting looking actors, at least in the supporting roles, but often in the leads. Mm hmm. That, that was just fine. Yeah, <laughs> Everything's and... just been sort of shaved down into this sort of generic attractiveness. And that's no slight against people who are attractive and who are getting these roles, but it creates mm. this image of the world that isn't accurate. And it doesn't really do a good job of pointing out that people who look interesting also look good. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, anyway. I, and I love the actor who, who they got to play, uh, Slugworth. Mm -hmm. It's played by an actor named Patterson Joseph, who I'm not familiar with, but yeah, he's mm. just another guy who is, mugging and chewing scenery in a really appealing way. I, I've seen him in so much British TV. He's yeah, wonderful. yeah, yeah. I, I, the last, like, uh, not this last time, but, like, the last, like, four times that they recast Doctor Who, he was, like, one of the people everyone said should oh, be Doctor Oh, yeah, get he that been, guy to Doctor Who. He'd be great. great. He still might someday, but, like, I know, you know. they like to... Well, I guess they don't always get younger actors. No, they went older like, with, um... Peter Capaldi. Peter Capaldi, yeah. yeah. So there's no, there's no reason why he couldn't be someday, but anyway. Um... Anyway, that's basically the movie. Uh, Hugh, Hugh Grant plays the one Oompa Loompa in the movie, and we find out that, like, Wonka, without even realizing it, stole the chocolate from Loompa Land, mm. and Hugh Grant has been, like, charged with getting it back. And He's been making it into chocolate. It's like, well, but in, in according to the laws of Oompa Loompa Land, mm. we have to get the debt back 1,000-fold. So you stole, like, three beans, yeah. and now we need 3,000 cacao beans worth of chocolate. So, like, jar after yeah. jar of chocolate is missing as he sneaks in to steal it. Yeah. Um, it's a bit of really interesting choice to mm. depict an Oompa Loompa character. Mm -hmm. First of all, Oompa Loompa is... Makes me a little uncomfortable. It it's has, not like, a great vibe. Vague, vaguely offensive vibe to it. Yeah, a lot of Roald um, Dahl stories weren't exactly well, he, uh, he's progressive writing, by even standards he, at the time. He's he's writing from the perspective of, Brit of a British imperialist. And yeah. the Oompa Loompas in the book were very clearly, like, H. Ryder Haggard, King Kong, Tarzan, and Tarzan mm. of the Apes kind of racist stereotypes, to yeah. be frank. Mm -hmm. um, and in the movies... They change them into kind of alien creatures. They give them like orange skin and green hair. Mm -hmm. and they were all played by little people actors trying mm -hmm. to like take that curse off of it a little bit. But it, they didn't change the fact that these Oompa Loompas were more or less slaves. It, the contact uh, has always been fucked. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and now we cast Hugh Grant, mm. one of the imperialists, one of the <laughs> most British actors out there. Yeah. As this previously subjugated type of character. I'm not sure if you've fixed a problem or made it, or made it well, worse and also, with this. And also you took a role uh, that's like specifically like designed to uh, be played by a, a little person performer. Mm. And you took you, you cast someone else which you is just sort of effects. like and, and they yeah, use special effects to make him like and like a foot tall rather yeah, than yeah you know, but like it's still it, it that, that that's hmm. that's kind of fucked and you're i realize that that's kind of part of the canon Mm. And you could argue that they're kind of stuck with it. And I would argue that it's fiction and you can make shit up. Yeah. And you can totally have done <laughs> something different with that. You didn't need Oompa Loompas in this movie at all, actually. Oh. So, eh. The thing with this movie is, um, and, and again, it's it's kind of charming. It's it's For me, it's light to a fault. Mm. And I think that's the thing that frustrated me. I grew up reading Roald Dahl books. That yeah, was like, that was, I practically learned how to read on Matilda. Um, and... I have an enormous affection for the good stuff. 
in mm-hmm. Roald Dahl's stories. And what I think he did very, very well was capture the feeling that childhood is an innocent magical time and also a time of extreme uh, uh, danger. Uh-huh. Adults are not looking out for you. There are bullies everywhere. You know, your, your future is uncertain. Uh, and you're, if you're going to make it, you're going to make it on your own. And I think uh, every kid identifies with that at some point. And that little bit of darkness, I think, mattered. The fact mm-hmm. that the characters lived in a scary world, even if they were sweet. Yeah. Paul King did the Paddington movies, in which the world is very sweet, except for, like, two people. Like, every one of those movies is wonderful, or didn't know they were wonderful until Paddington showed up. <laughs> except for, like, literally Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. And even Hugh Grant isn't that bad. Like, these are gentle, sweet, reassuring movies. And Roald Dahl has never really been reassuring. If it's reassuring, no, it's because you like went through hell to get there. I feel like they tried to make Roald Dahl reassuring more than once in some mm-hmm. of the movies. I feel like, uh, weirdly, the best Roald Dahl adaptations were have been done by Wes Anderson. Um, mm, yeah, he, he really has the tone. Yeah, because he, yeah. he understood, even when he made Fantastic Mr. Fox, mm-hmm. there's like... There's a lot of hip-talking in modern language. And he but... built on that story. That story's very thin, and he added a lot of good stuff to yeah, it. Yeah, but, I, but I feel like he, he understood that there is a lot of panic and bitterness. He mm-hmm. changed the characters around, but I think he got the spirit right. I agree. Um, I think I think that is the best role adaptation we've ever had. Uh, but Nic- Nicholas Rogue uh, could have made a really bitter version of The Witches. He kind of uh, copped out right at the end. Not only did he cop out right at the end, but who who is that kid in the middle? Like, the main character of the story is... No one. Well, again, that's that's and endemic to Roald Dahl. I, I, like, suppose, he's just I suppose. Not an so, interesting but, character, but, but you know, when yeah. when Spielberg made the BFG, he at least gave Sophie, the main girl, like mm-hmm. some personality. Well, she's wonderful in that movie. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's it's tricky to pull off Roald Dahl stories for a variety mm-hmm. of reasons, and this isn't even really a Roald Dahl story. This is a Paul King story. It's an basically. adaptation of an adaptation of an adaptation. Yeah, yeah, and then a prequel to that. So, um. It doesn't feel of a piece with the original, which it's actively trying to be, which is the only reason why I'm giving it some demerits for it. Uh, And I think ultimately its tone is so light, even though there are clearly elements that are trying to be dark and Dickensian, but those moments, those elements and those characters and those scenes never really strike me as very convincing. So it, it just comes across as fluff. And it's a little hard to complain that, like, mm-hmm. a movie about a chocolatier is as, as, is as substantial as cotton candy. Yeah. Like, well, I, it, it, it is what it is. And I'm I not mad a, at it, but I just don't think it's particularly good. There's a line in the Tim Burton film, and I'm not, I'm not sure if this was in the book as well, mm-hmm. where um, somebody just says, candy doesn't have to have a point. It's candy. It's like, well, mm-hmm. so you're going to make a whole movie that deliberately doesn't have a point and there's mm. there's an integrity to doing that but the mm. film doesn't roll with that kind of pointlessness in fact it's very incidental uh you haven't even talked about the other lead character this uh oh yeah noodle uh, noodle he uh when wonka falls in with these yeah. wicked Tenardier characters he's forced to work in their laundry for free like and yeah. and he's down there with all these other characters and yeah there's imagine this, those but yeah, I, didn't go, I didn't go into detail yeah there's the there's the uh a disgraced eccentric, accountant yeah the, the eccentric accountant there's the uh would-be stand-up comedian there's the plumber mm-hmm. there's the former uh, switchboard operator and then there's oliver mm-hmm. twist 
And, and there's Oliver Twist. There's a character named Noodle, and she doesn't know who her parents mm. are. She has a necklace, uh, which was... has the letter N on it, so that's what they call her Noodle, but maybe that will be important and, later. And she's young. She's like yeah. 12 or so. But when we they first showed her, I think like their heads were at a, a weird angle, so I couldn't tell how old she was. Mm. And for a like second... I couldn't tell she was as tall as he was. was tall, yeah. So I thought that she was like the same age as Timothy Chalamet for a second, mm. and she, the way they shot her, she looks a lot like the actress from Bones and All. So I thought, oh no, they're going to start biting each other any minute. They're, they're going to eat each other, Bones and All. Bones and All is a weird fucking movie. Very weird yeah. fucking movie. Um, uh, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, there's a heist in the movie where they yeah. kind of have to band together and that sneak out. feels and, like the uh, third act kind of like, oh, right, we're a movie. Sorry, yeah, we'll, do, let's, let's do a heist all the, of a The sudden. entire second act is like sneaking out to sell candies out mm-hmm. in the public and then sneak away before the cops can apprehend them. And there's this whole conspiracy where the local church is involved. Yeah, And that's... Rowan Atkinson is like sitting on this kind of store of uncut chocolate, which they've been using as bribery material. It's, it's yeah. Weird. Like I, I wish it were stranger. I wish it when it was trying to have elements of darkness was willing to actually feel kind of intimidating. Mm. But they're not. They're, no, not even for a second. Very light and, and reassuring, and that's okay. Mm. But I don't think it's very interesting. I, I, I don't mind a film being light and reassuring, and mm. I think it's this has a really interesting look. Uh, it's not quite as wild as Babe Pig in the City. <laughs> But no, I feel, I feel like it's close. I feel like it's approaching like it's facing in that direction, mm-hmm. um, where it's it's trying to create this bizarre world where these fantasy storybook. things can yeah. happen. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. And, All right, well let's move but, on. No, yeah, no, let's no. not move on. Oh, yet, because you something else. What, what else? What well, else? because we're, we've been care- comparing this to the Mel Stewart film, mm. and I think that's not quite the right analogy because what 20, they want. twenty. I don't care what they want. All right. What have they given us? Uh, All right. What they want isn't always what we get. Granted. And, um, this has been a year, 2023, of a lot of films that are uh, very positive on uh, the story of corporate thinking. Mm. Uh, we've had a film about the the invention of the Air Jordan. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had a film about the invention of flame and hot flavoring on Cheetos. Uh-huh. A film by the invention uh, of Tetris. A film by the invention the, of the Blackberry. The Blackberry. There was even a film. I didn't see the the Blackberry film, and I didn't see the Beanie Baby film. But I was one I about sort of got that came out. Yeah, there was. Yeah. So this has been a, a year where we're kind of looking back and realizing that a lot of our nostalgia is for the company yeah. and how it's not that we're excited by the invention of you know the invention of artists their spark of inspiration Mm. we're more inspired by the way a business came to be Mm. wonka is the kid uh fantasy version of that story okay we're kind of looking into the corporation and the birth of wonka as a factory and it just sort of casts um this really interesting pro-capitalist paul on something (laughs) That, it, that is supposed to be about like this idiosyncratic <laughs> artist, but really it's more about how the Wonka business came to be. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, I'm, if for the most part, it's about a small business, a a you know someone mm. entrepreneur, someone working out of their garage is the old cliche, yeah. uh, trying to trying to stack up or compete with these like three big mega corporations mm. that have a monopoly in the so entire market. It, so it's it, on one hand, that seems like a, like a pretty heroic story, but mm. by the end he becomes the market. Yeah, so it, it's about, it's not about, it's not anti-capitalist. It's about how there's different kinds of capitalism. There's the bad capitalism and there's the good capitalism. Yeah. And I feel like, this is another film that's sort of rising in the wake of whole the whole Steve Jobs thing mm. uh, about the brave 
what, what is it they said? The upsetters, the... the oh, uh, disruptors. The disruptors. Yeah. This is a disruptor drama. And mm. uh, it's kind of odd that we get something so pleasant and light and fun when really it is in the service of such cynical ideas. And the book was that. Like, the book, he was this weird, reclusive tech genius Mm -hmm. who had no connection to humanity, judged us all harshly. Yeah. And, yeah, like, that's... And and then ultimately did something very irresponsible with his fortune. He gave it to a child. (laughs) Like, what if that kid grows up and becomes a jerk? Like, things happen, you know? So... I, I see where you're going on. That's an interesting take. I will grant you that. It's been a weird year for those movies. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, let's move on to, okay. Do we want to move on to something that makes sense or something that doesn't make sense? Do- always doesn't make sense. Zone of interest <laughs> is one of the darkest a, a delight, movies you're going to see in a while. Uh, zone of interest is a new film from Jonathan Glazer, uh, mm. who did birth. He did, uh, under the skin. Mm. Um, and really fascinating, uh, contemplative, near surrealist filmmaker. Yeah, and his latest film is a World War II drama uh, about uh, a German family uh, living a sort of a seemingly idyllic well, it, home life, uh-huh. uh, where you know everything's kind of nice. They got their garden. They have a slide in the it, back. It opens the, on yeah. a river, and they're just sort of playing in the woods and having a picnic and. Uh, Sound is a very important part of this movie. Very important. In fact, it's it's more important than the images, uh, and so it's it's all going to be l- listen to what's going on in the background, and we mm-hmm. hear the babbling of the brook, and the wind sweeping through the grasses in this open one, and then we cut to their backyard, mm-hmm. and there's this weird rumbling hum in the background, like yeah, this David the, Lynchian sound, this industrial yeah. kind of ominous drone, and every once in a while you make out like some some voices or some sound effects and it becomes abundantly clear very quickly if you haven't heard the premise of the movie uh that their house this seemingly beautiful idyllic house nice little garden and a little little pool in the the yard is literally right next door to auschwitz it shares a wall with auschwitz Mm -hmm. the family living there uh is the family of the head of the camp yep there's a conversation very early on where they just have very uh frank conversation he and his compatriots about how they're going to rotate through the different chambers uh-huh to kill the most people the most efficiently yeah uh and meanwhile uh his wife is having guests over and going about the regular business Her mom comes to visit yeah and she's very very excited because this is the home she's always wanted and like then like in the evening like everyone goes to bed and the kids are doing things like looking over all of these teeth that they've found. Mm-hmm. Like that's what they're that's what they're playing with. And the whole movie is basically that. Like there isn't like this sudden injection of plot. Which, like, oh, and there, yeah, the, well, the soldiers have arrived or there's an escape or something like that. It's all about how to these people living next door to a genocide was normal yeah it's it's this is the banality of evil movie uh, yeah the, you say that there's you know there's shots of the kids playing with teeth it takes you a minute to figure that out oh sure uh, a lot of jonathan glazer keeps the camera back he mm. does a lot of like little 
kind of uh, uh, dioramas where he kind of like puts the can. There's a lot of detail in sort of the floorboards and the bedspreads. Uh, we don't get close-ups of the people mm. because they're just living their lives. This yeah. is normal to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it's, it's, it's kind of Kubrickian, yeah, like the and, actual the things that are going on are very emotional and people really care about things, but the filmmaker is pulled back, yeah, yeah, and just uh, wants to observe. And uh, yeah, they, they're sort of like going through, and uh, the mom is playing, you know showing people like here's the bedroom here's where you're going to sleep tonight and we hear screams yeah. coming through the door and they just don't talk about it don't they ignore don't acknowledge it, it. They, 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 uh, they, they don't even notice they, anymore. they have slaves in the house yeah. that they don't ever really the camera doesn't stay on them either they just yeah. sort of drift through almost in that ozu way where yeah. like family members go back and you just kind of notice the, the various levels of dynamic going on uh but it's it's not looking at sort of bubbling family drama like Ozu is. This no, is looking this at isn't just fine. Sort of, it's... This is all just kind of how yeah. everything has failed. The world mm-hmm. has failed that this can be. And when it, it sounds like the main character is going to be transferred off, uh, the concern is, but this is a nice home. Oh my God. Okay, so <laughs> the wife in this movie is played by Sandra Hewler, and mm. she was also in an amazing movie this year called Anatomy of a Fall. Mm. She's fucking amazing she's a really (laughs) talented actor uh and when she finds out that her husband is going to get transferred and they might have to move all of a sudden oh this is something i won't stand for Mm. this isn't right and her absolute absolute commitment to the belief that she is the aggrieved party here today Uh. is shocking and yet utterly convincing it is such an impossible scene and she nails it mm-hmm. it's so fucking terrifying um and but, it does it does develop some other things happen in the movie and yeah. uh, you know there we, we do believe the house at one point yeah uh, and we kind of see into the minds of these people mm-hmm. how the there's there's some like affairs going on but they're so mm-hmm. incidental yeah uh it is just about how easy it is mm-hmm. To be to get, casually evil. To get used uh, to something terrible happening. Mm-hmm. And, and and I feel like not only is that really stirring and shocking and mm-hmm. and kind of heart-wrenching, yeah. it's also rather unfortunately timely. Yeah. In, in, in 2023, we're seeing the rise of authoritarian rulers all over the world. Mm-hmm. We're seeing atrocities being committed yeah. as we speak. As we speak. There's wars going on. Yeah. There's hate everywhere. Uh, there's a, a rise of fascist dogma and rhetoric in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing how easy it is to go about your business, to, to go about your business when the bit and how easy it is to make death your business and do it dispassionately yeah. is all what the zone of interest is about. And yeah. I feel like when that's you kind of something we need to rub our faces in right now. It's it's a very striking movie. It's incredibly filmed. The sound design is absolutely like just mm. fucking uncanny um, and terrifying. Uh, it's it's incredibly well acted, and it's the, the the choice of how the movie ends. I will say, I was very I was very stirred by. Mm. I was like, how are we gonna conclude this without <laughs> it feeling false or without yeah. it being like putting too hard a button on it? Like, and I think they nail it. I think they found mm. a, a great ending for it. Um, but if you watch it as a movie of uh, in, in sort of a vacuum, you try to think of it as like about the banality of evil. Mm. 
it's easy to think to yourself, I get it. But when you realize that it's not a World War II movie, it's a movie about today. Uh-huh. It's fucking horrifying. Yeah, like, it, I, it is anyway, but like it's it's the what the implications, the modern contemporary implications, are something that I don't think are easy to let go. I hope mm. not. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's the power of it. Really, is the, yeah, was, the realizing like, oh god, this is too close to home. I, I was reminded very much of uh, the Michael Haneke film, The White Ribbon. I missed that. Which uh, please see the White Ribbon. It was it was my number one film that year. It was I just remember. so good. Um, and that's also a film that kind of explores the birth of fascism. And in that one's that was like about a small town where there have little kids are meant to wear ribbons of shame when they commit some sort of like mm. uh, transgression. And how those kinds of little minor resentments can grow into, like, neighbors attacking each other's farms. Yeah. And that leads to the crackdown of rules and the more, like, more and more authoritarian rule just sort of grows naturally from these little small town resentments. Uh, it's a really wonderful film. And that was also, speaking up to the moment, that movie came out in 2009, which was um, right after the, the George W. Bush administration. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, th- things weren't weren't so happy then. They're not so happy now, and these films are speaking to that. Yeah, um, I really I, do. Yeah, I mean it's it is one of the better films of the year. It's mm-hmm. one of the more difficult films of the year. Yeah, I really do feel as though that there was there's this. Some people have had this idea that like uh, World War Two again. Mm. Yes. Well, I, it's we need, really we fucking need to keep relevant. Bringing it up, bringing it because up, apparently, yeah. if we don't bring it up every fucking day, mm. some people aren't going to fucking get it, and we're going to start falling into that fucking cycle. No. Yeah, we, it's we, so we, fucking. We, mm. we used to fight fascists. Now we vote for them. It's it's yeah. really really fucking terrifying. I know, and it's and it mm, feels like you never do enough. Um. <sighs> anyway, it's incredible. <laughs> it's an incredibly depressing movie. It's also brilliant. Yeah. And so I realize that there is definitely a contingent of our listeners right now who are thinking to themselves, I don't want to see that. And I get it. Mm. There's also contingent thinking, that sounds amazing and I want to see that. Mm. You absolutely should. And anyone else who thinks that they can get through that movie, I do recommend it. It is fucking great. But boy, is it harrowing. Yeah. It, it, it's it's going to be a, yeah, it's gonna be a rough rough one but mm. it's going to uh if it's doing its job correctly mm-hmm. getting you to think about the world in a certain way yeah it, it feels wrong to segue to another movie basically like that's <laughs> that's the kind of like thing it puts in your head but we do have to talk about other movies and uh we, <sighs> oh uh, th- there is a, a portion i wanted to talk about it oh, uh, i'm sorry zone of interest because there's actually okay. um most of the shots are just sort of of, of this house and of this German mm. family. Talking about the black and white bits. But there, there's a bit, well... Uh, Not really. No. They're it, inverted. It, yeah, they, they use a camera negative. Yeah. And there's one, like the daughter of the family. Mm. Uh, almost like an ancillary character. It's not even connected to the other ones. Like mm. almost this fairy tale character who leaves the home. In the middle of the ex- night. In the middle of the night and kind of explores the surrounding area. Mm. And is doing small things that seem like nonsensical magic for a while. Like she's mm. some sort of fairy character. But you realize uh, she's actually doing small acts of rebellion. Yeah. Like, she's um, actually trying to, like, she's like leaving apples. 
Yeah. Where people might find them mm. in case they need or, food. Or uh, I do. think there's uh, that scene, yeah. like she's going to some wheelbarrows that need to be filled. And I think she's like pre-filling them a little bit for people. Mm-hmm. Um, like there there are people who are trying there's there's you know, people like there are people but, who are who, there, you know, point, I guess not trying that because that that seems like it's letting him off the hook. There are people who have noticed. Yeah. You know, and yeah, it's not enough. No, <laughs> it's not and, fucking and, enough. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do in in the face of such powerful fascism. Well, there is, but it's it, well, it's we, we, if it's we, all you, you can't. We, we like to think there is, but you look at we gotta do know, something. The or the organization and the number of people yeah. that needed to agree. To yeah. build something like Auschwitz, and uh, yeah. and I love the way it ended, and it does have bring up this interesting idea of the way we use sanitation, mm. the way we cl- keep things clean, mm. can be used as both a way to avoid evil, but also a way to absorb it in the modern day yeah. speaking of the ending but which That's i don't strange. want to reveal no but, uh, you're being you're you're being vague and i think it's smart right. um yeah anyway brilliant movie um what the hell do we talk about now chickens we'll talk about animated chickens okay all right well so, because the first chicken run that's get, true was, from which came out in 2000 was the first feature film from ardman and it was kind of a world war ii movie yeah it was uh, it was uh it was, was stalag 17 and the great escape yeah it, it uh, took a lot of cues from stalag 17 and the great escape which were uh, both world war ii prison movies yeah but it it transposed that kind of tone into an animated chicken farm, and it was anthropomorphic chickens as the main characters. Yeah. So it's about these heroic chickens who are going to try to escape the farm because they realize that eventually they're all going to be killed, which is it, true. It's an egg farm. Yeah. Uh, but if they don't lay enough eggs, they get killed. Yeah. And so one one plucky heroic chicken mm-hmm. uh, decides to come up with an escape plan, and they end up teaming up with a rooster. An American rooster. Yeah. Played at the time by Mel Gibson. Not anymore. Uh, who claims that he knows how to fly, and it turns well, out that he doesn't. Well, but he, he's, they, they, yeah. the way the film begins is, uh, you know, they're trying to break out of prison. The main character is named Ginger. Um, forgot the name of the actress. Julia Sawala. Julia Sawala, and it's it's Tendiwe mm. Newton in the new one. Yeah, uh, I don't know why they couldn't get the original actress back. Maybe they, maybe yeah. who knows? But three of the chickens, uh, uh, Bunty, Mac, and Babs, because I saw that movie a lot. I liked it. It's a great movie. Um, that's those three actresses all returned. It was um, Jane Horrocks, Imelda Staunton, and mm. whoever played Mac. I forgot the actress. Yeah. Name. Uh, but when they see this rooster, R- Rocky, he actually is flying. Mm-hmm. He's fl- and he actually la- accidentally lands in the chicken camp. Mm. And he like breaks his wing or something. And, like he's kind of yeah. like we're gonna heal that. And once mm. that's healed, he can teach us everyone how to fly. Mm. And then we'll all fly away. And of course, and everything he, will be great. And of, of course, course the, the gag is he's a fraud. Uh, it was a circus rooster that they shot out of a cannon. Yeah. And he escaped the the circus, but accidentally landed in the chicken farm. Yeah. But, uh, but he was coddled. He was hidden from the owners. The owners are... Uh, what, the, the Tweedies. Mrs. Tweedy was played by Miranda Richardson. Mm-hmm. Mr. Incredibly and, evil. And uh, and only referred to her husband as Mr. Tweedy. <laughs> Mr. Tweedy, there's a chicken outside of the fence. Uh, there's a pair of comedic rats named Nick and Fetcher, because they steal things. Yeah. Uh, one of them was played by Timothy Spall. Uh, it it was a delightful kid friendly version of a prison escape movie, mm-hmm. and a good way for Ardman to sort of display what they had. Mm-hmm. With and without even going back to their well, mm-hmm. they could have they could have started with the Wallace and Gromit movie. That was and a everyone, second movie. Was and Wallace and Gromit movie? And boys, yeah. everyone would have been happy with that. But uh-huh. no, wasn't their second? I think they did Flushed Away second. 
No, no, it was it was Curse of the Were Rabbit. Really? So, okay. Well, let me look that up. I feel uh, like Curse, yeah. it was definitely Flushed Away and Curse of the Were Rabbit. Um, Those are the next two. I don't remember what the order is. But... The the arc of Ardman has been pretty sad. Yeah. Uh, because they, there was a time when uh, when they were making their Wallace and Gromit shorts sometime in the late '90s when they mm. were widely celebrated. Yeah, they were just considered uh, the most, and the, and they still are. They're some of the most special animated shorts you're ever going to see. Yeah. It's absolutely um, magical. And then they moved into feature films and they made Chicken Run and that mm. was Great. well received. Then they made Curse of the Were-Rabbit and that was well received mm. won an Academy Award. Mm. Then they made then they decided, hey, we're going to move away from our uh, mm. usual art, artistry of plasticine animation. It was stop mm. motion using clay and plastics. And we're going to do that same aesthetic but with CG. And then yeah. that's when they made Flushed Away, and that was A, a bizarre story, and B, the CG didn't quite work. The for whole them. animation is yeah. bizarre at that in that film. So but they, then they made Arthur Christmas, and Arthur Christmas is great. Which is also CG. But that's a great CG. Okay. And then they did Pirates Band of Misfits, which yeah. I think is one of the funniest films of the that, 2010s. And, but unfortunately by then, that was 2012. Mm-hmm. It was like 11 years after Chicken Run, or 12 yeah. years after Chicken Run. Yeah. And I think the bloom was already off the rose at that point. People didn't care about Ardman pictures anymore. I think which is a pity because mm. Pirates is really good. I like Early Man. I'm one of the only ones. I actually didn't see Early uh, Man. And in between those two, they made Shaun the Sheep movie. Which is, which is one of the funniest bu- fucking films. Buster Keaton level of brilliance. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a silent movie about sheep infiltrating the city after the farmer loses his memory. and yeah. uh, Trying to get the farmer back. Trying to get the farmer oh, back God. into the farm. It's all silent. Yeah. It is a masterpiece of comedy. Yeah. The, yeah. Seriously. Uh, Arthur Christmas, Shaun the Sheep movie... And and the, um, and the pirates and yeah. the pirates in particular are just masterworks, and frankly, so is Curse of the Were Rabbit, and maybe to a slightly lesser extent for me, Chicken Run. Okay. Those are mostly they've done amazing movies. I didn't particularly care for Shaun the Sheep movie Farmageddon. What are you gonna do? Um, they've decided to go back to Chicken Run, and this one's called Chicken Run: Dawn of the Nugget, and. It plays as though n- almost no time has passed. You're, you're supposed to remember a lot from Chicken Run, which I think yeah. is asking a bit from the audience. Honestly, because that was a celebrated movie, but it's not like well known in the pop consciousness. Well, it didn't stick around. There wasn't like a TV series or anything mm-hmm. like that. It didn't. It, it it didn't come back. Yeah, a lot. It was came out 20 years ago and was very well received, and then that was that basically. Yeah, and I know some people still will be very fond of it, but I think maybe more of a refresher would have been useful at the beginning because well, I forgot a lot of from these the original movie more yes, of a refresher yeah. is my point but anyway um at the end of that movie the chickens escaped and they created a little home for themselves on an island well, chicken nearby. utopia yeah. like on the islands like in the middle of a lake like it's not like you know in the caribbean okay. or anything uh and that was it. They found their utopia, and they're happy. Cut and, to... And, and they started hatching those eggs. So yeah. they, there was a new generation coming. So uh, the uh, the lead character, now played by Tendi Newton, and uh, the American rooster, I think played by Zachary Levi. Zachary now. Levi this time. Uh, they have a daughter. Uh, their daughter is just as plucky and rebellious. And played by Bella... And, not Thorne. No. Bella, Bella Ramsey is, mm. is oh, the is performer's name. Oh, really? yeah. Okay, okay. Well... Um, She's just as plucky and rebellious, and she doesn't understand why she's not allowed to leave the island. And her parents have decided not to tell her about the whole humans murdering chickens thing. Yeah, they just want to stay just chickens only. Yeah, you do not need to know about the horrors that we escaped. Uh, And at some point, she discovers that there is a world outside, and she sees a van Mm. uh, with a happy-looking chicken inside a somewhat familiar-looking bucket. <laughs> and without context, she thinks, oh, that must be where the happy chickens go. 
I want to go there. And the parents don't really explain that very well, which is probably the ultimate lesson of the movie is talk to your kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she runs off to explore, find out about this chicken utopia, not realizing that she left one. Uh, and her parents and some of the other chickens, the ones that you recognize, go after her. And mm-hmm. so quickly she finds herself inside this chicken nugget factory. And it's up to her parents now to... Run by a mad scientist. Yes. And it's up to her parents now, instead of breaking out, they have to break in. Mm. Which is as good an inversion as you can get to keep sort of the same basic vibe as the original, but change it up enough to justify making a new movie. Yeah. Uh, It it is odd that they're relying so hard on the chicken run formula mm -hmm. when... That was the only movie that did that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, again, it's, it's... it, it would be great if you watched them back-to-back, I think. Yeah. If you watch them back-to-back, I'm sure this would actually play really, really well. But if you, like, haven't seen that movie since it came out or since, like, you were a kid in the 2000s, it's kind of a weird sit. By the time you acclimate, for, for, for myself, mm. I started noticing one thing. I wasn't laughing. There's only a few, like, laugh moments. It's not really um, very funny. And that's Aardman's bread and butter. They're funny. And yeah. they're really and, trying, but it's just nothing is really landing in this well, one. And it's, here's, it's kind of amiable, but not good. Here And here's what I always admire about Aardman, is that they're, they're, they're not just British. <laughs> <laughs> they're rather British. Yeah. And when we have, you know, Wallace and Gromit having very revolting looking British breakfasts, you know, mm-hmm. that that's, that's where these things really sing. Cause it's all packed with local detail. And there are some moments like that, you know, the characters drink tea and eat biscuits and they yeah. you know like, speak with various regional dialects. But I feel like in the, and I felt this way about Farmageddon as well. Mm. They're trying to go a little bit too broad with the audience and they're losing their specificity. They're kind mm. of British and Irish kind of farm life ideas by setting so much of it in this factory this start feeling really generic yeah and and the story is also a little too high tech it is about uh the mad scientist has invented collars for the chickens that make them very placid because evidently when they're placid Mm. when they're killed they taste better there's less stress in the meat um and there's I mean, the plot doesn't get any more complicated than that. There's no, basically. Like there's, there's a lot of action sequences. There's a couple of revelations. Some of them are the, more the, easily uh, predictable than others. The rooster character, Rocky, has been altered a little bit. Now he's like a little bit more of a doofus rather yeah, than a just di- a, a blowhard. Yeah. yeah. Um, which which I think is, is a good, fine character yeah. development because it makes him way less of a hero and it gets to focus on the, the child character instead. Yeah. And, and, it, and it kind of explains how like being a parent has changed the, uh, the main characters in the previous film. Like they were the, willing to take risks. They felt they needed to take risks. And now it's like there's a good bit where they find out like there's this like possible chicken factory that's like on the outskirts of town. And everyone looks to Tendi and Newton's character and it's like, oh, okay, here it comes. She's gonna, she's gonna give us the plan. We're gonna, we're gonna rescue all those chickens or something. And then she says, "We are going to hide," <laughs> and they all cheer. And it's like, oh my god, thank god! I thought we were gonna have to do something about mm. it. And she's just like, no, we have kids. Mm. We have to protect our children. We can't stick our necks out. And which I, I feel like that's something that you wouldn't find in an American film. I don't think you no. would. No, and, I, and the movie ultimately, you know, puts her in a position where she realizes she has to do something. Mm. But it's understandable and it tells you just how much 
being a caregiver for someone you love changes your perspective. Mm-hmm. And so both she and Rocky have changed somewhat. And the movie puts them through some of their old paces, forces them to learn a few new things as well. Mm-hmm. I really like uh, the new young chicken character. I think she's got a really good, solid what, arc. What and was the name of that? Yeah, it's like, that was something very... Ginger was the, the mom. Yeah. Um, uh, Molly, Molly, Ginger yeah. and Rocky's daughter. Yeah, um, and nice character, yeah, very so sweet. Imelda Staunton, uh, Jane Horrocks, and Lynn Ferguson was mad. Yeah, uh, the older RAF chicken. Uh-huh. Uh huh. They got a new actor because the old one had died. Uh-huh. But they got him with an actor who is has also died since the production. Oh my god! It wow. was um the same actor, uh, David Bradley. He is the oh the, the, yeah. the grouchy old guy from the Harry Potter movies and yeah. and. Oh, thousands of other things besides yeah um and and i i will say this the person who gets the most laugh lines in both the original film and this one is jane horrocks yeah <laughs> her, her her just compl- slightly babs a little bit dotty like yeah not disconnected just all she does is knit and she barely looks up and she's not really paying attention half the time she's fucking adorable um I like the design so of this like, movie. They're going to make us into pies. I don't I want don't want to be a pie. I don't like gravy. Yeah. <laughs> um I the the design of this movie is really really nice. Mm. It's colorful, it's interesting. I like the look of it a lot. Mm. And, but and and the the, yeah. car- the like little beady eyes and big wide mouths mm. that Ardman pioneered is still there and they, yeah, they they're just still, sort of rolled with And they're it, just yeah. as adorable as ever. It it's just makes no impression, mm. which is unfortunate. It's there's this kind of comedy where because the thing with a comedy is you're a comedy whether or not you're funny. It's whether you're trying to be funny that makes you a comedy. Because yeah. uh, comedy is a little subjective. What makes one person laugh won't make another person laugh. Uh, and, I, and I can accept that. And I think some movies, at some point in the production, decide we're not going to try to make people like busted gut. Hmm. What we're going to do is create a general air of lightness, of whimsy, yeah. of affability, and we're going to coast on that. So even though there won't be any high points, there will be no low points. Mm. And you're just going to, at the end of the movie, be like, well, that was sweet. And then you're going to move on and probably forget about it. Mm-hmm. But that's it. That's all we're after today. And I think that's kind of where Chicken Run Donna the Nugget ended up. Yeah, it's, 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 it's perfectly sweet to watch it. I will not remember this movie in a year. You'll have to be reminded that they like, made, oh, made a yeah. sequel to Chicken Run, oh, yeah. um, which is a pity because I actually do like Chicken Run. Sure, uh, it's original's great. Yeah, uh, I, I I like most of Ardman's movies. I haven't seen Arthur Christmas. Mm-hmm. I, I think you, Fl- you need to see Arthur Christmas. Uh, it's really good. Uh, Fl- Flushed Away is like their own like one legit stinker. Yeah. Uh, that's just and not even a that good movie film. has defenders. I, I, I doesn't it? I, 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 I don't get it. But it's there's a certain era in like the 2000s where people were trying to do some interesting things with CG and kudos were trying. I don't think it worked. Yeah. And I think flushed away is one of the ones where just the animation is off putting and strange in a lot of ways. And the one that I, I know some people love, I can't watch it. Like the animation style is like nails on chalkboard visually to me is monster house. <laughs> I love the well, idea they, of Monster House. They did. It, that was one of those early um, motion capture uh, yeah. attempts. Yeah, it's, I love the idea of Monster House. Like, what if the haunted house, but the house itself was a monster? And I'm mm. like, cool. I love that. That's a great idea. Doing animation makes sense. I just I can't look at it. Every time I try, it's like I, I have to look at something else. <laughs> <laughs> I just there's something about it. Just the, the specific really style. Video. The specific style just drove me nuts. And I feel like we were trying to perfect something, and eventually they got there, but that was not it. Um, 
So I feel I feel like that about flushed away. Like just something oh, about it, I find a little off putting. But um, anyway, um, moving on. Uh, we got one more movie that both of us watched. Uh, it's American Fiction, mm-hmm. uh, which stars the great Jeffrey Wright, uh, and it is a film from the, the, yeah the great oh yeah Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey no. Wright is an amazing actor, and he has been for forever. Yeah. I remember when um, I, I don't remember it was his first movie, but it was like his breakout role in Basquiat. Oh, that, that was his big breakout. Yeah, he, play, he played Jean Michel Basquiat. Yeah, yeah, and it was, just, and if you've never seen it, fantastic biopic about that was like the '96. It was like the mid '90s, yeah. and it's got a great cast. Like David Bowie played Andy Warhol. Mm. Like it's oh, awesome. Um, oh, I uh, there's a great bit where David Bowie is talking to Jean Michel Basquiat, mm. and they're like sort of looking at each other's art, and it's like, I just don't know what's good anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's so great. Um, Anyway, I've been a fan of Jeffrey Wright ever since. Uh, I loved him. And pre- I've never seen him be bad in anything. And he's not always in good stuff, but he's always great in it. And it's really, really nice to see him have a showcase role again. Mm-hmm. So uh, this new... to play a lead. Yeah. yeah, he plays a lead and he plays it great. The movie's unusual, I think, in, in a couple of respects. Because I think it's trying to be a couple of things that are very different from each other. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it always it's... clicks, but it's interesting that it's trying. Well, American Fiction is based on a book. Mm-hmm. And uh, by uh, it, this was written and directed by a filmmaker named Cord Jefferson. Mm-hmm. It's based on a book called Erasure by an, art, uh, an author named Percival Everett. And yeah. my understanding is that Percival Everett wrote this book in a kind of stream of consciousness way where there's a lot of different stories kind of drifting in and out of each other. Mm -hmm. And you can tell that the filmmakers are at odds with the material a lot of the time. I don't know if it's at odds or if they're trying to embrace that and it creates a somewhat disjointed feel because Mm. the a plot is very high concept comedy. Mm. Which we've seen before. It's, it's a fraud story. And uh, it's like, will you ever forgive me? Or, um, Mm. Can uh, you ever forgive me? Yeah. Or can you ever forgive me? Uh, mixed yeah. with a little bit of Spike Lee's Bamboozled. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jeffrey Wright is an author. Mm. He wrote. He's written some books. They weren't terribly popular. Just like in Can You Ever Forgive Me, there's a scene where he goes to a bookstore and decides that his his books aren't being uh, aren't being presented well enough. Although in his case, he's upset that be, uh, they're in the black literature section, mm. and he's like, "My book isn't about the black experience. It's I'm just a black author. I shouldn't mm. be here." And he gets upset about that. And um, and and a lot of, and that's a big part of this movie is, yeah. um, how this character is trying to explore his or not trying to explore his racial identity through his art, yeah. and how the more successful books are the ones that are exploring racial identity, but in a really cliched way. Yeah. In a way that he finds to be really demeaning. He finds them hackneyed. He mm. finds them uh, uh, promoting a lot of stereotypes that he thinks the, does everyone a disservice. This was and, a huge part of a really wonderful uh, Netflix movie from a couple of years ago called The 40-Year-Old Version. Yes. That's a uh, great movie. Yeah, which was uh, the yeah. same sort of thing, but in the Broadway world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about a, a black author who mm. is encouraged by the white establishment to tell more black stories, but for the white establishment, that means very specific things. Yeah. And I mean, it means very stereotyped things. Yeah, and, and she she's ends not up kind of... Con- she doesn't realize it, but she starts kind of selling out slowly and slowly. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's a great that's a great movie, by the way. Uh, I love the 40-year-old version. It's a great yeah. movie. Uh, uh, this version, so he, he in, a, in a fit, in a peak, he's going to... I'll talk about the other subplot in a minute, but with the other A plot. I guess there's two competing A plots. He's at his low point, and he hasn't been able to write anything forever, and he just decides to write the most hackneyed, 
uh, uh, obvious kind of insulting like, book he can possibly like, write about the black experience. Like that's his f- full of like, and to him this means he has to write a story about crime and poverty and yeah. uh, and a certain kind of language. Uh, he, yeah. he calls his fake book. That, you know, he's completely writing on a whim. It's not, he's just yeah. sort of getting it out of his system. He calls it my pathology. Uh, yeah. So he's even rolling with, like, the language that he finds to be offensive. And he takes it to his agent. His agent says, I, what is this? And he's like, he basically says, it's like a prank. Yeah. I just want people to see, like, this is what you're buying. So send yeah, to, it out to, there. To, show, to, show them this prank. To him, it was bad. And he yeah. thought everyone else would pick up on it yeah. that it's bad. Rather to his chagrin. Rather predictably, <laughs> yeah. it, everybody everyone latches it. on to it. Everyone which, loves yeah. it. Everyone says it's genius. It's being, it's, people are, it's going to be a bestseller. And he starts trying to sabotage it. I won't tell you how because it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. But like, he starts trying to sabotage it. And every time he, he tries to sabotage it and undo this lie, it makes it more interesting yeah. and popular well, to people. Did, did you see Bamboozled? Uh, I didn't see Bamboozled. Okay, I'm, uh, I'm aware of it. Yeah, yeah uh, Spike Lee made uh, Bamboozled in '99, and that's about um, uh, a TV producer, played by yeah. Damon Wayans, who, uh, because of a contract thing, can't quit his job. He has to be fired. So he decide, and he's tired of the way black people are depicted on TV because yeah. he feels like it's always very broad and cliched and just sort of very much of deri- uh, derived from minstrel shows. Like not, not much has changed in the last century. Yeah. So he decides, you know what? these are modern minstrel shows. I'm just going to make one like with actors in blackface and mm. using racial stereotypes and racial offensive like, thing he can possibly yeah, like come it, up it's with. set like civil war era, black characters. And he's just making the most offensive thing he possibly can. Yeah. Naturally it's a hit. Yeah. Uh, these are all like, I'm trying to think if there's an earlier version of that than like the producers where you mm. try to fail and you and just keep succeeding yeah. and you don't want to succeed. And it's the irony. It's like everything's finally going your way exactly the way you don't want it to. And that kind of comedic desperation is half of American fiction. It's half high concept comedy. The other half is a very grounded character study with him and his family. Uh, so um, we have Tracy Ellis Ross in this movie. Who, or, <clears throat> yeah. Who, who, plays his sister. who plays his sister. Yeah. And they have a few conversations at oh, the beginning. They talk, and there's written. one wonderfully written, oh, and there's God. a lot of characters. And then she dies really quick, really and quickly, suddenly. and and it has no bearing on the plot. It doesn't build his character at all. You wasted him. Tracy Ellis Ross. I would argue because what it does is Tracy Ellis Ross was taking care of his mother, and his mother is starting to show signs of Alzheimer's. Mm. And he has been... And she's played by Leslie Uggams. Yeah, great 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 cast here. Uh, And he has been letting her just sort of take care of all the family responsibilities. And with his sister gone, he starts having to do more for the people in his life. People who he actively didn't want to be around, actually, Mm. at the beginning of the movie. He said he hadn't seen most of them in years. Um, he's got a brother played by Sterling K. Brown. He's funny in this movie. Um, and so, yeah, he's trying to, like, pick up the pieces and start making human connections again. And all of that stuff is fucking great. It's, it's I really, love all that stuff. Well, because That's it, amazing it, writing in those scenes. And it, it's, it's great because it actually doesn't have the same sort of propulsive, high-concept plot element. It's just character work. Yeah. And... The only unfortunate thing about and like he uh, he's there to take care of his mother like out, mm. out at their beach house which is you mm. know out of, outside of the city and he ends up falling in with his uh, across the street neighbor mm-hmm. 
uh, and they sort of hang out and they have some wine and they start dating and they start having a relationship. I feel like that character is a little underwritten. Mm. Um, but these things just sort of roll along in a way that is just kind of exploring this guy's life. It mm-hmm. starts to feel like a slice of life drama yeah. where we're not building to anything. We're not receding from anything. We're just sort of ex- acknowledging the emotions we're feeling along this difficult time. Yeah. And it feels like, though, because this is linked to that other story, which is that a lot it's more all contrived, being, really, yeah. th- that we're setting all up this personal family drama just to highlight the fact that he's desperate and he needs money, which would give him a motivation to keep this lie going, mm-hmm. uh, which is the contrived version of this. And you've seen it a hundred times. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, World's Greatest Dad was another one yeah. where it's about literary fraud. Mm-hmm. Uh, pick a lane. <laughs> Mm. make a contrived funny movie with great actors about this interesting literary fraud that is shedding light on uh, barely acknowledged uh, stereotypes and racism within the writing community. Mm -hmm. That would have been a fine movie unto itself. Mm -hmm. Or tell this really free form kind of shapeless family drama about these characters and the problems they're having. The two don't click. And in fact, the contrived plot, which yeah you know, would have been fine and propulsive on its own, mm-hmm. kind of cheapens the other half of this movie. I think I feel like by the end they, if they had found like a way to really bring those things together at the end, mm. I think it would be really amazing, and I think it would absolutely kill. The ending that they pick is a little like they they try to go meadow with it, they a go little, a little bit adaptation and, yeah. with it, and I don't think I don't think it really works. Uh, I'm torn though because you know you say pick a lane, pick one thing or the other, and I think there's definitely something to be said for that. I think the point is the contrast. Mm. I think the point is to show that behind all of this uh, artifice, behind all of this bullshit, there's real human lives going on here. Yeah, uh, and I, again, I, I do agree that there isn't maybe the, the connective tissue isn't strong enough. Yeah. I appreciate the attempt to juxtapose these things, to take this high concept comedy and do like a human drama. And again, removing the very film's very specific themes just for a moment and just talk about structure. Uh, I would argue that something like World's Greatest Dad found a much more organic way Mm. to tell a serious story with this high concept comedy element. Uh, Even though that movie ultimately veered into the realm of extremely depressing, not Mm -hmm. really that funny at all. Um, Joe's okay with you know. Oh, it's a good movie because it is it is about yeah. death. Oh yeah, it's a good movie, but it is a real fucking bummer. Mm. It is probably Robin Williams's last great performance. Yeah, and he's brilliant in it, but it is not a fun watch. It is a it is a serious, depressing watch. But um, but this movie is about more. It, it's it's about so much, and I feel like it's kind of trying to fit it all in. I think it does an admirable job. But yeah, I feel like there's there's a presentation issue mm. where it's just are we in the funny movie now where he's like running across the street trying to pretend to be someone else, or are we in the serious movie yeah, well, where he's talking about his dead sister and mm. trying to take care of his mom? And I, there's yeah. they don't always you're right they don't always click. I think they click a little bit more yeah, than you give me credit well, for, but I I agree. Well, and you you start to see sort of the contrived movie at play. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want movies to be contrived, but if you give me something, follow through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
so they they set up a lot of a lot more fun, interesting story. Uh, the Sterling K. Brown character, for instance, mm-hmm. is kind of on the outs with his family. He needs work too. And wouldn't you know it, Jeffrey Wright, who is kind of this quiet professorial character, he doesn't he's not really a big personality, mm-hmm. now needs somebody to do that. You hire your brother to pose as this fictional author and that keep been, the lie. That would have made sense. Yeah. yeah. That would have They don't they don't do That would have been interesting. And while yeah, that's yeah. obvious, I do kind of want to see that. Yeah. Anyway, it, it's an interesting I, I think it's an ambitious and incredibly well performed. Like oh, yeah. the performances across the board. Are if, See it for that alone. If this is the thing that gets Jeffrey Wright his Academy Award, great. I'm fine. And honestly, uh, the the filmmaker, I want to see more from them because they clearly mm. have an interesting perspective. They want to play with our uh, sort of preconceived notions about w- what genre can be. Yeah. Uh, and I think that this is a really interesting start, and I'm very curious where they're going to go from here. It's a very ambitious first film, so. Uh, Anyway, excellent stuff maybe doesn't come together as well. Excellence, it's like a salad bowl of some excellent things and some mm-hmm. contrived things, and it just the, the flavors don't come together. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, the last movie, and this is a movie that is having uh, its sort of Academy Award qualifying run, and it will come out uh, again later this year or later or early next year. And I really want to talk about it now. Okay. Because there's an excellent chance this is going to end up on my best films of the year list. Okay. Uh, it is called The Taste of Things. Uh, and it is directed by An Hung Tron, uh, who had previously done The Scent of Green Papaya. Okay. Uh, Norwegian Wood. Uh, yeah, very talented filmmaker. And, oh, no, which is based on Murakami, right? Uh, I think Norwegian so, yeah. Wood? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Um, and this is a film, this is a period piece that stars uh, Juliette Binoche and uh, Benoit Magimel. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Ma- Magimel, I think? Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, they are, that's like 150 years ago. They're living in France. They're the greatest fucking cooks in the world. Okay. The movie opens with them picking vegetables out of the garden. And then there's this entire extended sequence of them just making what will be dinner. And you see the incredible... It's easy to think now with like all of our like modern appliances and ovens and things... That uh, we can do so much that we couldn't do culinarily uh-huh. from 150 years ago. And to see how they made all like all of our fancy you know appliances look like shit. <laughs> and just the absolute well, the keep, care. Keep, keep and in mind, the... modern appliances are for convenience sake. They're oh, not know. for uh, necessarily improving a meal. I'm, I'm aware of that. I'm trying, I yeah. think the movie is, does an excellent job of reminding you of that. Uh, and it, it's a movie about patience. It is a movie about taste and and flavor. Uh, and uh, yeah, they are putting together this incredible multi-course meal. And it's one of those great food movies where everything they make, you're just like, I want to eat that right now. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, and they cook it for uh, his uh, very... Um, they're like doctors and lawyers and things, but they mm. all have incredibly sophisticated palates. A lot, a lot of bougie. Yeah, he, he's... Well, it's not... It, bougie implies that they're assholes. They're not. Uh, they're, they're, they're pretty nice guys, as near as we can tell, but they're definitely hoity-toity. Uh, and they enjoy the food. They, they're amazed by the food. They go, oh, they're so good. Let me tell you what this tastes like, because you, the audience, don't get it. I know. Fuck you. It's so rude. This is what we should come with a cookbook. At least it's rude. Um, they have the whole wonderful meal, 
And by the end of it, Juliette Binoche is not looking so hot. Oh, dear. And you think to yourself, oh, no. Is that where we're going with this? And while he takes on... uh, uh, Some, like, visiting dignitary or member of a royal family, like, invites him to have a feast from his chef. And when they describe all the things that they'll be eating, and they sound amazing to me, this guy's face falls like, oh, this is going to be bullshit. <laughs> this is absolute horse shit. And now I'm trying to listen to it like, what's wrong with it? What? Oh, God. <laughs> like, And then they explain. It's like overcomplicated. And they, they, they cook these things too long. And it's too many courses. And doesn't it tell a story? And you're like, oh, my God. Um, over the course of it, you realize that he and Julia Pinoche, they're not married. But they are in love and they are fucking. Officially, she's his cook. Uh, and he's wants to marry her, actually, and she refuses. She she prefers to have... She says, I, w- I want to... Every night, you, like, come up to the door, and you knock on the door, and if it's unlocked, you come in. Okay. If I'm married, I don't get to lock that door. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great line. Uh, and so she wants to keep her independence, and he is desperately in love with her and she loves him too but they've they've they're just good the way they are hmm. and then when she starts actually f- feeling sicker and sicker and you're not sure if she's this is like is this the kind where she gets better is this the kind where she doesn't the movie hits this beautiful fucking bit and it goes on beyond it i'm not telling you the ending or anything like that uh this, but this sequence just is just fucking magical where she needs to take a break and be out of the kitchen and just you know convalesce for a while and he decides, and apparently he's never really done this before, he's just going to cook for her. He's going to cook her mm. the most wonderful things that he can do. This is his expression of love for her. I'm right. going to put all of my skills into giving you the best culinary experience you've ever had. Mm. And it's so romantic. <laughs> and it's so sweet. And the lighting is incredible. Oh my god. And it's another one that where I'm not going to tell you where the story goes because it's you think it's going to like the direction of like one plot point and then it kind of doesn't and it kind of does its own thing. I love the ending. <laughs> the ending made me really happy. Right. It's so fucking sweet. I'm a sucker for a good food movie. I think a lot of people are. Yeah. Uh, and it's just lovely in a way that few films are nowadays. Not nice. Not just good. But lovely. And it, it, it makes you feel like, oh, yeah. Whether things are good or bad, there's still magic in the world, isn't there? Mm. And food can be one of those things. Well, that's nice. That's, that's, that's wonderful. I want to go home and cook for my spouse now. Like, it's just it just leaves you feeling just on a cloud. And that's fucking great. It's, it's, I've seen a lot of amazing movies this year. And I'm going to talk in a couple of weeks we're going to do our best of the year list I've had wonderful experiences this year I I can't remember a movie leaving me feeling this sweetened (laughs) Uh, but deservingly so it's not like the Wonka kind of like corporate confection where it's nice yeah this is just wonderfully masterful filmmaking and it's masterful filmmaking in pursuit of Showing us that the world, without being contrived, without being false, without making it seem like someone's lying to you, 
has some lovely things in it. That's great. <laughs> so I fucking love that. So um, time for the review roundup. We're going to review our movies on a scale of C- to C+. A C- is below average. We don't recommend those movies. Uh, C is average. You know, some good, some bad. Better, more for one audience than another. And then a C plus is above average. Those are movies that we hardly recommend. Yeah. The Taste of Things gets a huge C plus. All right. I just, I, I, I'm struggling to think of someone I wouldn't tell to see this movie. Like, it's just really great. Um, I love it to pieces. Uh, American Fiction. Uh, it, it's a C minus. Really? Um, okay. There, there's a lot of wonderful things in it. Um, but it's, it's not. A whole movie. It's two half movies that don't add up to a whole movie. Well, I liked it more than you did. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give uh, it a, like a high C. I, I loved all the performances. I loved mm. the cast, but it, it feels like it didn't really connect in any kind of way. Like they didn't try to make it work as a feature film. I, I don't disagree with you, but I do think that the elements end up making it something that I'm not comfortable saying is below average. Right. I'm I'm going to say that the performances and some of the sequences in particular are so strong mm-hmm. that they elevate the material even when the clash between the two plots doesn't feel organic. Okay. But it never quite comes together and feels great, except in the performances, which are unilaterally great. Th- this is true. Yeah. All right. Uh, Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget. Uh, this is right up the middle. It's pretty mm. average. Yeah. Uh, it's a C. Um, it's like a textbook it's definition of a C. Pretty much. Like it's, it's, yeah. just, it's just okay. It's just okay. Uh, you know? And, you know, I'm, I'm always pleased to see Aardman again. They haven't made mm-hmm. that many movies, so I'm, yeah. I'm glad. When are they going to get to that Castle Blandings film? That's just oh, what I'm God, waiting for. Please. Not that they're making it. I just want them to. I know. Uh, the Zone of Interest. Uh, I mean, it feels crass just to say a C plus wonderful yeah. movie, but it is a pretty, pretty important film, very mm-hmm. impactful film, uh, yeah. very difficult film. Uh, looking that closely at evil is going to be very uh, mm. harrowing and truthful in ways you don't want it to be. Yeah, no, I, I it's this movie is going to sneak up on you. Yeah. I think you're you're going to say to yourself, "Well, this is." this is sort of profound, but also not a lot's happening. And as you watch it, you realize everything is happening. Mm. And it's, it, it really is a masterwork. It is an incredible mm. film. It's incredible production design, uh, incredible sound design. The performances are uncanny, even though they are evil. Uh, and there, there isn't another film like it this year mm. and not most other years as well. So uh, it's bleak, but necessary. Yeah, I do yeah. think it needs to be seen. Uh, and then uh, lastly, Wonka. Wonka I'm going to give a very high C to. Uh, okay. It's it's not, not so dazzling that I think you need to rush out and see it. Mm. I enjoyed the experience of watching it way more than I expected to. Mm-hmm. I feel it does have a bit of soullessness creeping underneath it. Mm-hmm. But Paul King is so determined to charm you that... He, that he you know pulls through at the end. He actually does what he sets out to do, and that is make a nice, bright, colorful, pleasant to look at comedy mm-hmm. with a really wonderful cast and a lot of just general confection like pleasantness. There's a there's a scene in this movie. It's early on where Willy Wonka is trying to sell his chocolates, and he thinks everyone's going to love him, and he's going to be an instant success. And the heads of the other chocolate companies show up. It's like, well, we'll try these chocolates. Mm. And they 
eat them, and they talk about all of the different interesting flavors in them, and they say, that's why it sucks. Mm. It should be one thing. Mm. Just one thing, and that's all the chocolate needs. Everything else is just making it too complicated. And I think that's a really good description of Wonka, <laughs> where it's not bad. It's, mm. it's like a low C for me. Right. But I think that it's trying to just kind of be one thing. It's trying to flatten it out. Mm. And I think there's enough in the material. There's darkness here. There's bitterness here. There is an opportunity to make this movie genuinely interesting as opposed to just mild. Yeah. And mild isn't bad, necessarily. And ultimately, it did kind of be like, yeah, it's okay. But like, it, it, it never really sang for me. Right. So it's a C minus. It's not an unpleasant watch, but well, it's also. Is it a, is it a C minus or is oh, no, it a low C? It's All a right. C. It's a All low right. C. It's All not right. a C minus. It's a low C. It's not an unpleasant watch, mm. but I don't think it's an interesting All film right. in any particular way. Uh, and that is that. Yeah, uh, I expected. I think I'm just surprised. Mm hmm. Because you know, probably this, didn't film, much. this film and its construct, I kind of expected to loathe it and how cynical mm. it all was. And the, this milking of uh, IP that my generation grew up with just makes me sick. Sure. Um, they're making another fucking Ghostbusters movie. They are. And oh this one's God. about ice ghosts for some reason. <sighs> anyway. Uh... I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> Oh uh, my, you could power a machine with how much I don't care. Bring back the extreme Ghostbusters. That's the sweet spot. Uh, that is it for Critically Acclaimed. <laughs> Thank you everybody for listening. We'll be back next week with reviews of a whole bunch of stuff mm. for uh, kind of the holiday Christmas uh, season. All, all the big Christmas releases uh, are coming up. Yeah. Uh, Rebel Moon again. Rebel Moon opened in mm. limited release this week. Very limited for Oscar run, but it'll be on Netflix next week. That's when we're going to review it in depth. Uh, we also have uh, The Color Purple, uh, Aquaman, uh, and a bunch of other things besides. Ferrari. Be... Oh, yeah, Ferrari. New Michael yeah. Mann movie with Adam Driver and Penelope Cruz. Mm-hmm. Ferrari's coming out. So it's a lot of movies. We're going to be reviewing a lot of movies next week. And then after that, best movies of the year. And, uh, it, uh, mm. Christmas is coming up. It's a ho- sure holiday you and I both celebrate. And yes. uh, it, it falls on right in the middle of our usual recording schedule. So yeah. things might be thrown a little bit. We, as well. we, so, we'll try to record early if we can, but we might end up recording the next episode a little late. Mm. And if that's the case, we're sorry about that, but it, it's the holiday. We want to spend it with our family. So yeah, we're going to yeah. do the best we can, but uh, we, we do love you. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining us. If you want to uh, join in the conversation at all, you can email us. Our email address is letters at critically Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, send us a physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yes, and uh, we'll have a new episode of We've Got Mail later this week. Uh, and uh, bah, 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 bah. Uh, Patreon. We have a Patreon at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We have a lot of exclusive shows over there. Uh, we have a show where we're doing every single episode of Star Trek ever. We just did... Uh, an episode about the uh, really important two-parter where Leonard Nimoy actually appeared on Star Trek The Next Generation, which is a pretty, pretty big milestone. Uh, we also have a show where we review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture, a show where we review every film ever nominated for Best International Feature, and we're getting ready to do one about uh, the samurai film uh, Musashi Miyamoto, Yes, uh, which is I, I had not seen before. It's fucking amazing. 
amazing. <laughs> I, I, yeah. uh, Inagaki, I believe, is the mm-hmm. director's name. Yeah. And I, I watched this one in college, yeah. and it's been a while since I've seen it. I remember being blown away. It's, but I, I'm, I'm going to have to go back and see it again. It's, it's a stunner. Like It's really great. I can't wait to talk about that in depth. Uh, and, and a lot of other things besides. So thank you to all of our patrons. Oh, you get to listen to all new episodes ad-free. Bonus. Uh Thank you to all of our patrons. Without you, we would not exist, and that means the world to us. Thank you for your support. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, and, uh, of course, we're on the social medias, at Critic Acclaim. I'm Matt William Bibiani. Matt Whitney Seibel. And never forget, everyone is a critic, including you. <laughs> <laughs>